Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle 24. I am Marcus Hippi. In the next half an hour, Georgina Hayden on old Mediterranean recipes that happen to be vegan. I found myself always talking about the fact that we have a very lentil, bean, vegetable-rich diet. And it kept coming around. I thought, hold on, if I'm talking about this so much, I need to put my money where my mouth is and actually research this. Then we head to Spain, where one company is busy serving paella to hundreds or often thousands of people, breaking world records with its cooking. The paellas are cooking for 1,400 people. But that's tiny in comparison to the almost comically huge paellas that Calvis presided over in 1992 and 2001, breaking the world record twice. We are also in Florence to round up the biggest discussion topics at this year's Pity Taste Food and Drink Fair. Just try to close your eyes and think of the sea, and then you will uh, get the maximum from the product. Just, uh, All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle 24. You could be forgiven for thinking that the Mediterranean region doesn't have very long traditions in vegan food, but as a matter of fact, many recipes relating to Lent and other times of fasting don't include meat or dairy at all. It's these recipes that piqued the interest of the London-based cook and food writer Georgina Hayden, and now she has released her new book Nistissima, which focuses on these tasty vegan dishes. I spoke to Georgina a bit earlier to hear the story of her book. Nistissima, it means Lenten food. It's a Greek word and we use it to describe foods that we eat when we're fasting, which is the period before Easter, Christmas, any religious festival basically. So it's foods that don't have animal products in them. And how was the idea for this book born? I understand it's got something to do with your previous release. Yes, yes. And my last book, Taverna, is all about my family. It's about Cyprus and my Greek Cypriot heritage. And when I was writing Taverna, which includes all types of food in terms of like meat, dairy, everything, you know, I sort of realised actually we have a very vegan heavy diet and naturally vegan and when I say naturally I mean our foods we have many recipes and cuisines that just happen to be vegan we don't make a song and dance about them but they are just they just don't have any dairy or meat in them and it got me thinking so it was whilst I was doing all the publicity for Taverna that I found myself always talking about the fact that we have a very lentil bean vegetable rich diet and it kept coming around I thought hold on if I'm talking about this so much I need to put my money where my mouth is and actually research this. And what happened then how did you do the research I do guess that the pandemic may have made things a bit more complicated for you because this is a prime example of a book I would imagine in normal circumstances you would have been traveling around the Mediterranean and beyond but obviously you weren't able to do no, exa- much of that. No exactly so I relied on things like social media talking to fellow food friends so what I found was that with Greece and Cyprus the reason we have so many vegan recipes and vegan foods is because of the Orthodox Church so whilst the book is not a religious book it obviously it looks into the religious aspect because that is the influence behind the fact that we have all these vegan recipes right so I go into that quite a lot and then I look into all the foods and the history about the foods and how they came about 
And I know the Orthodox Church is prevalent in places like Russia and Ukraine, which are obviously very topical at the moment, and other parts of Eastern Europe, and also the Middle East. So I thought, okay, so I started talking to other food friends, such as Olya Hercules, Alyssa Tamishkina, and then I put out calls on things like social media, where I found some fantastic contributors from Armenia, Serbia. So whilst I couldn't travel to these places, I was speaking to people all over. An amazing contributor called Elham, and she was in Jordan, and she was fasting at the time of research. So I was FaceTiming her in Jordan through a friend who is Maronite. He does pilgrimages to Lebanon, and he's got this amazing father, Father Augustine, who lives in this incredible monastery where they grow everything and Obviously, they fast all year round and he was WhatsApping me recipes and things they were cooking. So I relied heavily on things like WhatsApp and social media and FaceTime to do my research. And and it was amazing. And actually, because we shot the book just out of lockdowns, whilst I couldn't travel, it did mean that we got to photograph some of the contributors, which was great. How open were people to share these recipes with you? I'm wondering, for example, when Father Augustine gets an email or a phone call from someone in London, what were the first reactions like? So generous, so generous and so happy to share. You know, we shot in my local Orthodox church at a very crazy time of year. It was on Easter Saturday. So Easter for people of Orthodox faith, it's bigger than Christmas. You know, Easter's a really big time of year. And to have, we weren't a big crew. It was just me and a photographer and my AM, my granny. To have us come in to a church on Greek Easter Saturday is kind of crazy. And they were very generous and let us shoot in there. And people were really kind of their time. I, I'm really fascinated by Mount Athos. So Mount Athos, for those that don't know, it's an island in Greece, although it is slightly connected to the mainland. There's monks that live there. No women are allowed there. So I will never be allowed to go, which kills me. But, you know, these monks are completely self-sufficient and they are fascinating. And they've written their own cookbooks because they fast obviously and they grow everything themselves and I was emailing these monks I was like can you tell me about you know and they were wonderful I mean it was slow going the emails went back and forth about a year and a half but they were very generous and very happy to share what they knew At least you managed to do one trip. You went to Cyprus to visit a monastery. Yes, I did go to Cyprus. I have a neighbour who is, you know, she fasts religiously and she knows all the good monasteries and convents and places to go. And she said, look, if you're going to Cyprus, there's an amazing place just outside Nicosia. And we got to go, which was incredible. And there's about 40 nuns that live there. And they grow everything. They have almond trees and olive trees. They have a shop. They're self-sufficient. They make all their own nistissimo vegan preserves and sweet treats. And they were, again, they were super generous with their time. And I just remember it was a really, really hot day. It was about 40 degrees. And I'm there with my two children, my baby, my husband. And they just brought out this tray of this homemade, you know, citrus cordial that was like, the most refreshing heavenly experience in this very calm place and I just remember falling completely in love with these nuns and if you've ever been to an orthodox church you'll know they're quite ostentatious you know they're very gold and dripping with bling but this convent was the opposite I've never seen anywhere in Cyprus or Greece like that it was very minimal very calm very beautiful very serene and the nuns it was amazing to, to visit that before the book went to print because I just I wanted to see and get somewhere you know 
and to get one of their recipes in there as well was brilliant. You mentioned that cordial. I'm wondering, what are your favourite recipes in this book? Now tell me about what you actually discovered when you were doing this research. There's so many. There's so many incredible recipes for various reasons. One of my favourites for the story is I met a lovely lady called Cherise. Cherise's grandmother, as I do he, she always fasted. And when we wrote the book, she was still alive. She's only recently passed away. She lived to 100 years old. And Azaduhi was Armenian. Her dad fled the genocide in Turkey. They emigrated to Cyprus. There's a big Armenian community in Cyprus. And then when the war broke out in Cyprus, they moved again. And then they eventually ended up in the UK, which is why Sharice is here. And she was able, her granny always fasted, and she was able to share a few of her recipes with me. We managed to shoot her in the book as well, the granddaughter, with her granny's crockery. And there's an amazing recipe in there for Anushabor. Anushabor is a pudding. And as with a lot of these recipes, very humble, greater than the sum of its parts, is made with pearl barley and then lots of nuts and dried fruits, honey, orange blossom water, rose water. And it's sort of got the feeling of like a rice pudding, but really rich and beautiful and delicately flavoured. But the story around it is fascinating. It's called Noah's Ark pudding and lots of different communities around the Middle East and cultures, they have their variations. It's meant to be the oldest pudding in the world. And the thought is that on the Ark, everyone on the Ark put everything they had in this big pot. And then as the rain stopped and they sort of came to, the pudding was ready. So it's a really amazing recipe, an amazing story, but also come from a wonderful source as well. So I love that for so many reasons. When you look at this collection of recipes, do you think they tell us something about the food philosophy of the Mediterranean? Oh, totally. You know, I'm not vegan. So I think writing as a non-vegan, it was fascinating in lots of other ways. I'm not going to try and tell people how to eat or I'm not trying to train anyone. But I think the thing is with the Mediterranean, you know, we've got... Over here in the UK at the moment, at least, a lot of people are trying to eat more veg or eat less meat. And I'm seeing lots of people trying to convert dishes they know into vegan or into plant-based. And instead of doing that, I just think if we take a second and look further afield to other cultures and places where people have been doing it for centuries, you'll find a plethora of recipes that just happen to be plant-based but are incredibly delicious and you won't necessarily miss whatever it is that you're cutting out. And I think that's the thing with the Mediterranean, or at least that part of the Mediterranean, the Middle East. These are cultures and communities and places that, you know, historically they might not have had refrigeration or it was a very hot climate or, you know, like in Cyprus at least. I think people think our diet's all meat, lots of grills, lots of souvla, slow-cooked meats. And that is true. We have all that. But they're celebratory dishes and they're not things historically. Forget now that people have more money, but historically they weren't things we ate all the time for every reason, for finances, for refrigeration, and all those things. They were things that were occasional. But actually, the majority of the time, things like pulses and lentils and vegetables were the hero. And it's really fascinating. You said that the idea for this book was born when you were promoting your previous book. I'm wondering, might you have an idea for your next <laughs> book yet, thanks I, to this? Do you know what? I really don't. I am going to write. I need to write another book. I have another book in the pipeline. I think what's become apparent to me, and not to say this necessarily what my book will be about, but what's become apparent to me over writing now my third book is I'm a very nostalgic food writer. I mean, I live for food. I love writing recipes. But all my food comes from a place of family and nostalgia. And it's very important to me. So I definitely think I'll probably end up staying on that path, whether it carries on with my heritage or not. We'll see. But I actually don't this time. So maybe it'll come. 
That was Georgina Hayden, who has just released her cookbook, Nistisima. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Now we are off to Valencia in Spain to find out how the region's renowned paella tradition is being taken to new levels. It's always been a popular dish to feed large groups, but the Galbis company specializes in serving hundreds or often thousands of people. Their innovative cooking techniques have broken world records, and they are in especially high demand right now during the Fias festival season, when the city of Valencia is transformed by colorful parades, parties and fireworks displays. Monocle's Ana Gonzalez sent this report. On a crisp Sunday morning, this charming town square in the village of Quesa has been taken over by an intriguing spectacle. Two simmering vats on wood fires are tended by a team of four chefs who throw in bucket loads of ingredients at carefully timed intervals. Rabbit and chicken meat, green and white beans, tomato paste and snails are in the mix today as well as rice, obviously. Vicente Martinez is overseeing the mass cooking operation. It's important to make these paellas because the whole village comes out to eat. Everyone gets together. And it's much easier to cook like this because we can feed a thousand people with just three chefs. There wouldn't be a space to feed a hundred paellas for ten people each. You would have two hundred people cooking and it just doesn't work. Vicente has more than 30 years of experience on the job. He was one of the first employees at the Galvis Company, which has become a household name in Valencia province, where the world-famous paella dish was born. It all started in 1979 when restaurateur Antonio Galvis made a light-hearted wager with friends at a gathering before the Fallas festival. But he had no idea it would become a life-changing moment for his entire family, as Dota Hema explains. The idea first came up at a party in the Basque country. My father was hanging out with mates from the gastro world and they prepared a marmitaco stew for about 250 people. After a few glasses of wine, they started joking around and my father said, this is really small compared to the paella I'm going to make for the fayas. I'll cook one for a thousand people. Everybody laughed, and a few months passed, but then a newspaper published an article about the ridiculous claim, so Antonio felt morally obliged to go through with it. Galvis retreated to his peaceful chalet in the mountains near Valencia. He hired a blacksmith to craft bespoke paella pans out of shiny steel, and began experimenting with different sizes, recipes and combinations, inviting his neighbors to taste. Hema remembers those days with a cheeky grin. The first paellas were an adventure. We thought that if we just multiplied the quantities of ingredients we normally use at home, it would work for everything. But no, what really drives you crazy is the amount of water. 
because we use wood fires, which burn at a different speed, depending if the logs are drier or more humid. Sometimes all the water disappears sooner than you expect. No two paellas ever turn out the same, and we've had to modify things a lot. But today, I think they're really tasty. The giant paellas quickly took off at community events, going on to become the Galbis family's main source of income. Today, in Quesa, the paelleros are cooking for 1,400 people. But that's tiny in comparison to the almost comically huge paellas that Galvis presided over in 1992 and 2001, breaking the world record twice. Valencian journalist and paella expert Paco Alonso was there. Fue un espectáculo, claro. Esas paellas gigantes para 100.000 personas y 110. It was a serious show. Making paella for 100,000 and then 110,000 people, which happened in Madrid. It was like building a boat. They had to bring the steel and weld it together on site. That massive pan needed special supports and cranes, with engineers controlling the fire and a mobile platform which dozens of chefs were using to stir the ingredients before adding the rice. But it was really good. A self-proclaimed gastronomic agitator, Paco is one of the brains behind Wikipaella, a cultural organization focused on demystifying the dish. He says any well-made paella relies on the rice being entero, suelto, seco y sabroso, whole, loose, dry and tasty. His favorite part is the slightly burnt golden, crunchy layer which gets stuck to the bottom of the pan, known as socarrat. And he deeply appreciates the work of Galbis in raising the profile of paella, giving countless people the chance to experience a taste of Spain. La familia Galbis son increíbles. Lo que han hecho por la paella ellos... They're an incredible family who have shown our culture to the world. They've cooked gigantic paellas in the United States, Japan, South America, the Antipodes, Australia, New Zealand and many more countries. The paella is like a flag for them. In fact, they've even shipped out Valencian water to make it as authentic and original as possible. It's a beautiful story. La, la historia es muy bonita, ¿eh? During the popular Fajas Carnival in March, the Galvis team had to take on extra staff to meet demand. As well as paella, they cook gazpacho, tortillas and other rice or seafood dishes for large groups. Antonio Galvis passed away in 2017 at the age of 84, but a statue of him sits in a quiet corner of the cavernous warehouse where giant pans and lorries are stored. For his daughter Hema, the idea that a humorous bed has turned into a prospering company still inspires this belief. Nunca él imaginó que, que aquello que salió de, de una fiesta se pudiera convertir en un negocio. My father never imagined this could be a real business. The first paellas after his testing process were cooked in friends' villages with just my dad, some of the lads and a chef, who was pretty much making it up as they went along. It was like a travelling paella party, 
But over the years, we had to hire cooks and professionalize everything because more and more orders kept coming in. Today, Galbis is not only a name or a person, it's a brand and a great responsibility for me. Para mí una gran responsabilidad. With Gemma now running the show, the Galvis legacy is in safe hands. Their chefs have visited more than 800 cities over the last 40 years, and you can be sure that number will keep on growing. For Monocle in Valencia, I'm Ana González. That story was produced by Frederick Berners. You are with The Menu on Monocle 24. Next up, we continue to Florence that recently hosted PT Taste, the annual trade fair dedicated to artisanal Italian foodstuffs and drinks. This edition saw a record number of exhibitors descend on the Tuscan capital, where a new venue provided ample space for foreign buyers to sample the best on offer from Italy's kitchen. Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavallio visited the food fair and brought back this report. The arrival of spring in Florence signaled the return of Petit Taste, Italy's foremost trade show, celebrating all that is good at the dinner table. Now in its 15th edition, the event for the first time was hosted in the sprawling Fortezza da Basso Renaissance Fortress, as organizers welcomed 470 food and drink producers and 7,000 visitors. Newcomers to Pitti included exhibitor Diamante D'Alessio, a former magazine editor who now runs her La Podorina estate in Tuscany, making olive oil. Diamante D'Alessio. I want to produce a very strong extra virgin olive oil. The name is Orgoglio della Podorina. I bought a little estate in Siena because when I was a child, I used to spend a lot of time in Tuscany. And I think that the soil of Tuscany is an incredible soil to make extra virgin olive oil and I choose for my product a name which is uh, my philosophy is pride, means pride in English the name is Orgoglio della Poderina the Poderina is the name of my estate Uh, why don't you try some of it okay Divante I'm going to try just here with a bit of of bread okay Hmm, that's, that's quite fruity very fruity, very strong. It is done with three different cultivars, which is uh, Moraiolo, uh, Leccino, and Frantoiano. The blend of the, those three cultivars uh, make, make a very strong and fruity, as you said, uh, extra virgin olive oil. Now, for pairing, is this something you would have on salads, or is it more for other dishes? I think it's uh, more for uh, vegetables, and it's better, if, I mean, it's a pity to cook with it, honestly. And uh, so I think it's uh, the perfect is with uh, legumi, with pasta and legumi and uh, veggie. Buyers from gourmet food shops, from traditional markets like France, UK and the US, were well represented with people looking for tasty treats. From Germany, Ralph Bernd of Viani, a family-run importer that owns eight stores, was on the lookout for businesses respecting quality and flavor. Ralph Bernd. CEO of retail at Viani. 
Our consumers prefer products uh, with good taste and even with the good story behind it. And it's not only the story they're looking for, they like, if they get products from the producers herself. We like to sell the products of Mancini uh, because the taste of the product is incredible and they do the pasta of their own wheat. Vienna's customers are drawn to good storytelling, Bern says, and sustainable methods. Pasta made directly by a wheat farmer in a slow process to best preserve the product is done at Pasta Mancini in the Marche region. Lorenzo Settimi, marketing manager from Pasta Mancini. This is the Nonno Mariano spaghetti, which is a new spaghetto from Pasta Mancini, which is made from a, a new wheat variety that we developed internally. And uh, its name, Nonno Mariano, is a dedication to Massimo Mancini, grandfather, Mariano Mancini. This is a very important spaghetto because of its uh, drying process. We are about 44 hours to dry this spaghetto and it's uh, limited to the first harvest of this new wheat variety. And how is this process then? Is it using the bronze dyes? Yes, of course. All, we use only bronze dyes and uh, we use our old bronze dye that we just have before. Next to producers, one also finds gourmands like cheese affineur Eros Burati, who runs his gourmet deli, La Casera, on the shores of Lake Maggiore. La fontina è totalmente diversa dal solito. È una fontina molto più gustosa, con grande carattere. Burati is showing off his fontina cheese, aged 1,000 days, a process he uses to bring out more complexity and flavor. He also pairs his cured cold meats and cheeses with niche wines, like a traditional method sparkling wine from Nebbiolo grapes, from winery Perusso. Another new arrival at Taste was Fish Different, from Calabria, that sells anchovies and sardines. Marco Ciordullo, sales manager at Fish Different. Fish Different is the new brand of Calabria Itiga. It's a project that is, uses only fish caught by sustainable boats. We are certified by Friend of the Sea, and all fish is caught in southern Italian seas. And then, you know, what is important in our project is to leave the fish the way it is, the natural way. We call it filetto rustico, it's a rustic fillet. It means that we don't touch it too, too much. We leave the livery, the, you know, the, the skin of the fish. Okay, here we are. Now I'm showing you the fillet we were talking about. The 24 months fillet, I mean, we kept, you know, the vialacce, so these big sardines, for 24 months under salt before forgetting these beautiful fillets. And why 24 months? Because this is the way to have the maximum taste getting from the fish, you know. You can see the color. The color is, uh, is brown, you see. And the brown color means that it's very mature. Just taste it. Okay, Marco, I have some bread here, so let me try this. Sure. This is like, it's kind of like a sardine. Oh, like. Of course, yes, it's a big sardine. The Nalaccia was caught in Lampedusa, where the presidium, slow food presidium is. And we, we catch only there, you know, just only there. Plus, look at it. Just try to close your eyes and think of the sea, and then you will uh, get the maximum from the product. Just the, what do you mm, think? That's lovely. All right. Coffee, another Italian specialty was bringing up new ideas too. Sicily's Morettino, a century-old family operation, brought its latest micro-roastery project called Musanera. 
Francisco Panzera, manager at Moretino. We have uh, five different singular regions from uh, Peru, uh, Rwanda, Honduras, and we have um, also a specialty blend uh, from uh, four different singular origins. They have uh, different uh, tasting notes from uh, toasted alzanut, caramel, black tea, or, for example, bergamot, uh, sweet bread, and uh, maple syrup. And so these you want to try to get the niche consumer really excited about, about coffee? Yes, definitely. We try to announce uh, all the organolectic power of each uh, single origin product and try to attract uh, coffee lover from all around the world. And these could be used for either French press or with the mocha? Yes, and in our laboratory we work on a different roasting curve in order to uh, you know, make the product uh, consumable for uh, like mocha, filter coffee, pour over bursixi, but also for espresso, which is our main uh, way to consume coffee also in Italy, and we're very proud of it. Italian producers at Taste had a right to be proud given that they follow traditional practices free from harmful additives and which respect the environment. They take the time to get the flavors and aromas of foodstuffs just right. For Monocle, in Florence, I'm Ivan Carvalho. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday if you're listening in San Francisco. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for great recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens. I am Marcus Hippi. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Kelly's with Milkshake. Thanks for listening. My milkshake